Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. What is up, my friends? Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. My name is Grant Baldwin. Good to have you here with us today. Hey, we got a great episode for you today. I'm really, really excited about this one. We have a lot of guests on the show from time to time, just interviewing and hearing people, their stories of how they got into speaking, how speaking has been a part of their business. And uh, all of them are great. Today's episode, today's guest is great. Today, we're going to be talking with my buddy, Phil Boyt. And Phil is a guy that I've learned a lot from and uh, just have a huge, huge admiration for, huge amount of respect. And this is a guy who's done a great job as a speaker, but we also talk about how he's kind of balanced life as a family man, as a husband, as a dad. And so he's someone I've really admired uh, in that respect. He's also someone who has built a speaking program, a couple different speaking programs where he doesn't necessarily have to be the sole person presenting, that he can have other people go out and speak and present his program. So we talk about how he's built that up, how he has used that to better leverage his time so he can continue to generate revenue and income for his business without him always having to be the one that goes and gets on the plane. So that's really, really cool to hear. I think you're really going to enjoy that. So hey, before we get into that, let me quickly remind you that uh, on a regular basis, every single week, we are doing these online free trainings, teaching you all about how to get booked and paid to speak, how you can find and book speaking engagements. So we'd love to have you join us on the next one that we do. You can go over to freespeakerworkshop.com. That's what I was looking for, freespeakerworkshop.com. Register for that. Come hang out with us. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'd love to have you join us. Again, freespeakerworkshop.com and learn all about how to find and book speaking engagements. So let's get into it. Here we are, episode 64, my conversation with my buddy, Phil Boyd. Enjoy. What's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, we are joined by one of my friends, one of my heroes, a mentor that I consider, Mr. Phil Boyd. Uh, Phil, I met several years ago and just someone that I, I've always admired and respected. And my wife, my lovely wife, who was recently on the show, would tell you that whenever I speak, that Phil is the guy that I want to be like. He's not only a great speaker, but just a great, great guy off the stage as well. So it's an honor to be able to hang out with him and to have him uh, hang out with us today. So Phil, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great, Grant. Thanks for the call. You bet, man. Well, uh, first of all, let's kind of take a a high-level view of your speaking business, of what it is that you do, and then we'll kind of backtrack and figure out how you got into this crazy thing. So what what does uh, speaking look like for you today? My focus is I want to impact schools. My real goal is to help people create a school that no one wants to leave. How do teachers walk on campus going, I love this place. I don't want to retire. How does a senior go, I'm going to miss this place so much. How does a kid at the end of the school day go, I'll go home in a while, but I like the way this place feels. And so whatever we can do as a business to help schools create that, that's what I want to be part of. You and I, 
we've obviously both done a lot in the education market, but that's what you described there is a very daunting task. So like, what does that look like? I know that you have done a ton of speaking in schools and in the education market. So does that look like a school assembly? Is that teacher training? Is that speaking to parents? What, what all does that in, encompass? Yes, it does. All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. When someone says, you want this here to go, I said, yes. <laughs> so when you say that, it, my career started doing like leadership camps and leadership conferences uh, way back. And then schools would say, hey, would you come speak at our schools? So then I started creating school assemblies. And, and that's a tough deal because kids have to be in there. They walk in. And so you got to use a balance of humor and stories and have some great points. And then principals start going, you know, I really like what you did with the kids. Would you do something with my staff? Well, guess what happens? Now a superintendent happens to be in there and goes, hey, I like what you did with the teachers. Would you do that with my administrative team? And then every once in a while I get their question, will you do that with parents? And I, I don't do parents much anymore because parents are reluctant to come to school. Yeah, They're yeah. not available. And then I have to stay an extra night sometimes. So that's something that I've kind of moved away from. But my focus is the people who operate in a school on a day-to-day basis, students, teachers, and administrators. And so you go in, and I know that you do a lot of just a standalone assembly, like an, maybe an hour assembly, but I know that you also you have built a program that is more about working with smaller groups of students for longer periods of time. So kind of talk us through that. What does that look like? Well, Grant, I think there's three stages in the speaking career. Stage one is I want to be a speaker. I'm going to create this message. They're going to like me. Cool. Whoa, they liked me. Stage two is... We get done speaking, we're like, okay, did they like me? That's cool, but is it going to sustain itself? Will it last? Stage three is I don't really have to spend a lot of time worrying about do they like me? I'm comfortable with that. I'm solid. Some days going to like me, some days not. But will the message I leave last longer than a week or two? Will someone be thinking about that a month from now? So, yes, I do go in and do a school assembly. I spend anywhere from 55 minutes to 75 minutes talking to perhaps 1,000 kids or 500 kids auditorium, gym, whatever. But where I really want to have the impact is we have a program called Breaking Down the Walls where we go into a school, we started with an assembly, set the tone for the week, and then the next three to four days we take 200 kids into the gym and we do a six-hour workshop with those 200 kids. And the whole goal is for them to engage with kids they normally wouldn't talk to in a structured way so that when they walk at the end of the school day, they're like, I can talk to anybody. Anybody will talk to me. I feel safe emotionally and physically here. And man, I'm thrilled I go to this school. The next day, 200 different kids come in. They have the same experience. By the time you get to Thursday or Friday, six to 800 kids have gone through this and it changes the way the school feels. Sometimes for six weeks, sometimes for six months. I've got notes from people two, three years later going, that changed the whole way I looked at school. That's what I want to be part of. I want to be a part of changing the way somebody looks at the way they walk down the halls, the way they sit in their desk. So, so whenever you go in, you do that initial assembly on, you typically do that on Monday and then you just do the next several days of doing the smaller programs? Right. Yep. So typically, are you trying to do like a Monday to Friday in, in just one school? If possible, that's the goal because... That's how we're going to have the greatest impact. You know, we'd set the tone on Monday with everybody in the whole school. Here's that message. They walk out going, all right, that's cool. Well, then their friend is missing class on Tuesday. Like, hey, where were you? I was in the gym for breaking down the walls. And then Wednesday, another group, maybe Thursday, that same friend is in the gym going, oh. That way, when they get back to their social group at lunch or at break or after school, someone says something inappropriate. Like, hey, we don't do that at our school. 
somebody makes a joke that may be homophobic or just isn't appropriate, hey, we don't do that at our school. And so it creates a shared vocabulary for kids to think this is who we want to be. This is not who we want to be. And so it creates a sustainability. In terms of the the six-hour sessions where you're working with with 200 students in the gym, what does that look like? What do you walk through? Because I think, uh, you know, uh, especially if you're speaking to a group of high school students, like you you mentioned before, you have to use a lot of humor. You have to use a lot of stories. They are generally a nice audience, but at the same time, they're a very honest and real audience And that if you're not keeping their attention and not keeping them engaged, they're going to check out and tune out. Uh, And also, like you kind of alluded to there, that, you know, if if you or I are speaking at a conference, generally they want to be there in a school. They have to be there. They're happy you got them out of class. They're happy, really happy that you got them out of class for six hours. But beyond that, it's hard to get them on your side. So what does that look like over the course of six hours speaking to the students? Well, I think a real, I've got six other guys that do it for me, five guys and a gal that go do those because we have too much business for me to do myself. So as I train them, what I notice is the first couple times they speak, I watch them and give them a chance. They kind of are trying to develop a rapport by joking about themselves, about a mistake they've made, self-depreciating perhaps, or they're trying to develop rapport through that. What we've learned is when we do the assembly, there's some of that that happens, but we get into the workshop, we want to make it all about them, about them sharing their story, about them learning. And so we try in the first 15, 20 minutes to build trust that kids go, okay, cool, I'm glad I'm here today. This is going to be good. And then we get them involved. Kids are moving. In that six hours, we may actually do two hours of talking where over six hours, 15 minutes here, half hour there. Otherwise, it's facilitating them through activities that give them a chance to talk, interact with other students. Because nobody – well – there's people that do it. There's trainers all over the world that make someone sit for six to eight hours, but we don't learn that way. So what we've learned is interaction, get people moving and and interacting with each other. I want you to hear someone else's story. So when you pass them in the halls tomorrow, there's a relationship. What do some of those activities and interactions look like? Oh, some of them are the same stuff people have done at summer camps all their life. You know, we try to avoid some of the most common ones, human knots, but we're doing name activities and running games and playing games because the goal is there's a quote that goes around. I think it was Plato that said years ago, I can learn more about you in an hour of play than a week of conversation. Hmm. And so if people play together, then they start to build trust and they start going, okay, I want to be here. Gotcha. Let's backtrack a little bit. I want to come back to this in a second of just building that program and what that looks like beyond yourself, scaling beyond just one speaker. But let's go back into how did you actually, I don't, I guess I'm not even sure uh, off the top of my head of how did you get into speaking? Like what were you doing pre-speaking? I was a kid. Seriously. (laughs) I went to state student council leadership conference in high school. I grew up in California and they had a pretty developed leadership program. So I was a state officer. I saw a bunch of speakers and I said, I want to do that someday. So my senior year in high school, I started doing little workshops. And during the summers during college, I did summer camps. And so I got a chance to do seminars, workshops. And that's when schools say, hey, come to my school and I do an assembly. And the first couple were pretty bad because you know, when you watch another speaker, they look so good, so right. easy. And you come out, you're like, oh, my gosh, I just did my best 15 minutes. I got 30 more minutes. What am I going to say? Right. And so by the time I got done with my, my degree and had a teaching credential, I said, you know, what? I'm going to give this a try. And by then, you know, I was five, six years into it. I had a pretty decent repertoire and could do some things. So were you doing like a, were you a classroom teacher for a little bit? No, I student taught, but I actually never went in as a, a paid teacher. 
Okay. Um, I got my credential, got my did the student teaching for the year, and got all that. But essentially, at that time, student te- or first year teachers making nineteen thousand a year. Yeah. I owned a janitorial business, and I was making more than that working part time cleaning offices and restaurants. And so I was like, it doesn't make sense. So I kept the cleaning business, and I started speaking. I didn't know about the cleaning business. What was like? What was that? When was that? That was college. I started my freshman year. I was working in a shoe store, and a guy came in and started washing the windows. And I said, well, how much do you make doing that? He said, about 12 bucks an hour. Well, back then, I was making $3 an hour as a shoe salesman. So I actually started a window washing business. And within six months, I was making $1,000 a month washing windows around town. And then people said, hey, would you clean our office? Would you clean our bank? And so by the time I graduated from college, I had eight guys working for me. And we were doing about $150,000 a year in, in revenue, just cleaning offices and stuff part time. And I've always been an entrepreneur. I, I would buy and flip homes before flipping became a deal. I bought three or four rental houses, fixed them up, and then sold them. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't think. I, I guess I didn't realize that the wayback machine there. Okay, so whenever you are really getting into speaking and starting to do a lot of speaking, are you still doing the janitorial, the cleaning business? Is that kind of paying the bills while you're building the speaking business on the side? Yeah, that's what I always tell anybody who's speaking. Because most people aren't going to do what I did. Most of them are going to. They're going to try to leave a career and go in. So they've made making $25,000, $50,000 a year. They're like, how do I replace that? Well, it's right, pretty tough right. in the first year or two. So I'm always like, keep your regular thing or something unless you've got a spouse who's making a good living or a partner because otherwise people try for a year and they go, wait a minute, I made $16,000 this first year. I can't live on that. But right. if they can keep something. So I did. I kept the janitorial business. I kept the three rental houses. But it was getting crazy. We had our third child. And so we're like, hey, keep the kids, keep the speaking business. And we sold the rental houses and we sold janitorial business. And then seriously, the first couple of years, we lived during the summers on credit cards because I had no income from about May until August. And so Lori's like, hey, how much do you think you need? So she would go borrow against a credit card for 3500 bucks that we could get through the summer. And then I'd start by December, we'd pay it off. By about the third year, She's like, hey, we have enough in savings. We're not going to have to borrow on the credit card. So it's, uh, it's seriously, it was like there's always this joke that says it only takes 15 years to be an overnight success. Yep. So very true. I know for Sheila and I that uh, one of the slowest seasons was always like November, December, January. Like after Thanksgiving, we just knew we were entering the drought and hopefully we had saved up enough. Otherwise, it was going to be dry for a little while. So, And I think you kind of figure out some of those ebbs and flows. And so when it's good, it's really good. When it's bad, it's really bad. Uh, but I would totally echo. I think I had a similar story of when I was getting started, I worked a sales job and worked at a couple different restaurants. Just kind of a hodgepodge of stuff, just making ends meet while you're building the speaking thing. Because the speaking thing, it just like you said, it just takes a while to build. It's not the type of thing where you know, you're know you doing one type of job. And you're like, all right, I'm going to quit this on Friday and on Monday, I'm going to magically become a speaker. It just doesn't work like that. So how long did it take you to go from the idea of, hey, this would be fun. I think I could be a speaker. I want to make a run at this to being able to quit everything else and being able to just do speaking. Well, I started doing stuff probably in 1982 or 83. I was a college student and I was getting some traction. After three years of university, I took a year off and spoke full time, but I was charging 100 bucks a day. I'd go and do five or six hours at a school for 100 bucks. That's crazy. And so I, it's just that was the 80s. There weren't speakers. Schools weren't used to it. And right. so the young speakers, I hope they have a respect for 
that generation, not just me. I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but there was a group of people who were kind of building this. Right, and right. now a lot of speakers are like, I want $2,000 a day or something. I'm like, I don't think you're going to get that. You got to kind of work your way up. But there's certainly a base of what people are, I mean, a lot of conference, you speakers say, oh, cool, we'll use you, we'll use you. So that was built over time. And so that's why it's so different today than when I started, almost irrelevant. So, but what you said is so true is don't quit your day job because it's, it's going to take a little while. Even back then, it probably, I, I think I was doing it part-time for three to four years to develop a reputation before I did sell janitorial. And then I had a little cash to live on. I, mean, I sold it for twenty-five dollars or $30,000, I think was my part. My brother and I were partners. So I didn't get rich, but I had enough to live on for a while. Yeah. As you're building up the speaking stuff, it's starting to go well. What were you doing back then? And then what have you found that works today just to continue to find bookings? And I know today it's going to be very, very different than whenever you got started, especially because the longer you do it, the more word of mouth you have, the more repeat business you have, the more just reputation that you build in the marketplace. But what has worked for you in just terms of finding and getting bookings? Well, one of the things I think you've done well, because I went through your coaching program four or five years ago, and I would assume it's the same thing with this podcast, is you know how to create business. So I'll answer it from this perspective. I think you've probably done a good job teaching people how to do that. But one of the things I try really hard now, because if you think about this, I'm 54 years old. I'm talking to teenagers. You'd think the market would say, let's get a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old or at least a 35-year-old, somebody who's bald with three little kids, kind of an athlete. Let's put them in front of kids. So I've had to say, what am I going to do to become a category of one? Yeah. Joe Calloway, I went to a workshop a while back. I spent eight hours with Larry Wingett and Joe Calloway, just paid a lot of money, sitting at a table. And one of the things he shared was, how do you become a category of one? Where when people think we need a speaker on this subject, oh, well, you got to have Grant Baldwin. No, just no question. You got to have Kyle Shield. That, no question. You got to have who is that person? I want them to say, oh, you got to have Phil Boyd. Because at that point, they're not going to really negotiate. They're going to say, what's your fee? Thank you. And so that would be a thing I would encourage people to do is they're going to be in phase one of I just want to talk. Right, but right. as you move into step two, is how do I create so much value for the customer that they're like, I have to have this person because they're going to do something for my audience that nobody else will do. What does that look like? How do you create that category of one? And then give us some, like, is there any like time frame of how long something like that takes? Because it's never one of those things. It's never an overnight success. It's never even just a, okay, I've been speaking for a year and now suddenly I'm magically a category of one. It just, it takes a long time of getting good as a speaker, of refining your message, of figuring out what that category could even be. So what does that process kind of look like for you? How has that evolved over time? Well, it's interesting you say it because I watched the original Mike Smith. That's not who I'm talking about. I talk about the current Mike Smith, the hot dog guy, a skateboard. Mike Smith has come around so fast, what, two or three, four years maybe, yeah. because Mike kind of figured out a unique niche. And then he figured out what kids are responding to and it's i don't know mike i met mike one time in nevada student councils and i've watched him but he's kind of figured out some cool stuff so he's become a bit of a category of one in a three or four years so i don't think it takes a long time i think what a speaker's got to do is figure out what are they passionate about and then what does the market need right now and that's going to change every couple of years because people kind of go through flow and so for me what i have been passionate about my whole career is school culture yeah. Well, for about 15 years, schools have been focused on data and instruction. 
Well, finally, right now, they're starting to go, culture matters. And so the administration is like, how this place feels. Well, I was ready at the time because some people would know I created Link Crew way back, 88, 89. That was about how to make a school feel. And because it was an orientation program, schools bought in because everybody needs an orientation. But when schools leaders think, how do we want school to feel? It's just we're starting to get there now. And everybody's jumping on the culture bandwagon because it's the buzzword. But most people aren't talking about culture. They're talking about climate. And the difference is culture is how do we feel over time. Climate is how do we feel today, tomorrow, the next day. Most people talking about culture really talking about climate. So that's what I've tried to do is figure out what am I passionate about? What do schools need help with? If I only get 5 or 10% of the schools to participate in what I'm doing, I'm fine because there's so many schools. You, uh, you you touched on Link Crew there. So uh, talk us through kind of what Link Crew was, how it built, and then what the transition was with it. Well, I've been done with that for 11 years, 12 years. Boomerang Project has mastered Link Crew. This year they've trained more teachers than ever, which I'm thrilled because that means more kids are going to be welcomed into high school or middle school. It's a transition program. It was something that I was doing some pretty cool stuff with leadership conference and my client says, could you do that for our freshmen? I'm like, sure. And then all of a sudden we had this product and somebody said, can you teach me to do it myself? I'm like, I don't know how to do that. So I created a workshop, a three day session to teach this person. We had nine people come and the next year, 27, the next year, 64, because people needed a freshman orientation. We created a turnkey process where it was something they needed. I could teach them in three days to do it themselves. It was expensive. We were charging $1,500. No one was charging more than $300 at that time. But people are like, yeah, we need this. Well, at this point, they don't care what it costs because it's such a powerful program. And Boomerang is the master at a three-day training. It's awesome. And so you built up Linkru and then you eventually sold it to Boomerang, Boomerang Project with Micah. How did that transition kind of take place? Well, Carolyn Hill and Maribeth Campbell both worked for me. I hired them away from their school because they were doing Link Crew. They worked with us for five years. Amazing women. And then Micah, I met him when he was a high school kid and had mentored him. He went, worked as a speaker for a while. Then he left, went to work in the corporate world for a couple of years, got his MBA. When he was coming back to speak and he said, hey, Phil, I want to buy Link Crew from you. And I said, the only way you can do that is with Carolyn Maribeth, who weren't partners, they were employees. He said, absolutely. So the three of them came to me with an offer. I said, hey, that works. And over the next three months, they knew it real well. I, we just did a transition and then they took it and just increased it incredibly. And so you started with Link Crew, then you've built up today. You're doing Breaking Down the Walls, which you touched on earlier. So uh, let's kind of talk about that for a second, because I know a lot of people as speakers, a lot of times we focus on our, you know, for lack of a better term, just kind of our personal brand, just we're focusing on ourselves as the speaker, as the product. But one of the things you've done a great job of with Link Crew and, and Breaking Down the Walls is building up more of this program that is not necessarily built on Phil Boyd has to be the one to come speak. We could have other speakers that could come present on this material. So can you kind of talk us through like the fundamental differences between the two of building up a personal brand versus a program that other people could present? Yeah, it's interesting because the speaking business by nature is I want to be the speaker and you need to have me. That's kind of what most speakers do. That's kind of the model that we all follow. I guess if somebody says what the message is is more important than who delivers it, that's the first step. I got to be honest. Some of the people who present for me are better speakers than I am. Stu Cabe is over the top brilliant. 
speaker. He lives in Coeur d'Alene, Washington. The guy is a master with the microphone. Dean and Rochelle Wellums are two people that do Breaking Down the Walls for me. They are incredible gifted with the microphone. And so I have the privilege of watching some people share my product out in the world with their gift. And so, again, I'm trying to – there was a guy in National Speakers Association. I watched do this. I, I'm trying to remember. I, I think his name was Orville Wilson, um, a guerrilla marketing or something like that. And he created a product that was so good that he just needed a bunch of people to help him. And there's a lot of speakers in NSA that do that now. And I think what it is is creating something that's of so much value that a lot of people want it and then pricing it correctly and then finding people to partner with. It's not easy. Many speakers don't want that lifestyle. They want to be able to say, hey, when I'm on the road, I'm speaking when I'm in my office and I'm going to go do my thing, which is a pretty cool way to live. Right. So you've, I mean, it seems like you've always been very intentional to almost try to remove yourself from the equation. So it is more about hiring. We don't necessarily care who the speaker is. We just want link crew or we want breaking down the walls. We want the program to come to our school, not necessarily Phil Boyd to come to our school. Is that accurate? Yes. And I would even say the third step, we want the results. I think that's what I'm trying to help my clients have is they're like, I want my school to feel like this. And if Rochelle can do that or Dean can do that or Stu can do that or Mike Walsh can do that. Great. Awesome. And so, and the challenge we all have as speakers is, okay, they hire us and we do an amazing job. So they call and say, hey, will you come back next year? You're like, uh, I just gave you my best stuff. If I come back again, it's my second best stuff. And that's never the best way to go. Right, and right. so imagine they have me this year, then they have Mike next year, and then they have, you know, and they can have us on a three-year rotation. I know there's a lot of people that are interested in speaking in to schools and speaking to the education market. It's one thing to come in and do just a one hour assembly for an entire school, but it's a whole nother thing to do like five days worth of presenting and speaking. So you have a great pulse and a great sense of the education market. What have you found like in, in terms of budgets? Do schools have money? Do they not have money? Is it hard to get the money? Kind of talk us through that. Shh, don't tell anybody <laughs> because here's the deal. I think there's a lot of people who are corporate speakers who they kind of laugh at us a little bit. We youth speakers, but there's a lot of us living like Grant Baldwin, and we're taking five vacations a year. And you know, um, I you, tell you what, I love watching you on Facebook. What a great way to raise your kids. But I think that, yeah, there's money in the youth market. Um, districts find the money. I, you know, here's the deal. I've always said if the football helmets got stolen on Tuesday night, on Friday night, there'd be football helmets. Right, right. That means that there's money somewhere and they'll find it. So my feeling is if I can create a category of one that they're like, we need this, they're going to find the money. And I, I'm always surprised because imagine what it costs the school to have us in for five days. Yep, yep. And so, you know, everybody doesn't spend that money that way. But there's four kinds of buyers out there. There's a struggler who's like, oh, do you know what budgets are today? There's the thinker, hey, let me think about it. We hear from them three years later. And then there's the achiever, okay, if we do this, what are the results going to be? And then there's the doer. That's good for kids. Let's do it. Yeah. All we need to do is find the achievers and the doers. What do you think? And again, this is just pure speculation, but what do you find in people that you talk to and administrators and principals, districts, whoever? What percentage of them are the achievers and the doers versus the others? Oh, I, it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to get percentage, but. Here's the feeling, Grant. If all I need to do is get 10% of the schools in the country, I'll have so much more work I can't even handle it all. So what if I get 1%? So 
administrations come and go oftentimes in a three to five year period. So a lot of times I'm working with the activities person who stays there for 10 or 15 years and they just have to coach the administrators. What we're trying to do now, Micah Jacobson is really working on this, is how do you help the buyer become an investor, not a spender? So whether you're a corporate speaker or a school speaker, how do you help that buyer realize you're investing with the dollars you're spending? You're not spending it. Oh, we have to spend $1,000 for this speaker. No, how do we convert that to be an investment? So they're like, we're investing in this, and it's a $1,000 investment. What does that look like? How do you present it as more of an investment than a, an expense? We have to show the results. have to be able to say, look at the difference on your campus. Because 80% of our schools have us do breaking down the walls, have us do it every year or two out of every three years because they want those results. Yeah. And so for them to go, what does our school feel like? Wow, we love this feeling. What did we do? Oh, we spent $7,000. We spent $10,000. Dude, we'll do that every year. Yeah, makes sense. Let's kind of wrap up and talk about this. I alluded to this in the beginning, just introducing you that uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge, huge fan of you, not only for who you are as a speaker and as an entrepreneur, I've had a chance to see you speak and watch you in business and you're extremely good at what you do. But I also have a huge admiration and respect for who you are as, as a husband, as a father, you've got three kids, you're a brand new grandfather. Congrats, my friend. That's Thanks. awesome. And so I'm, I'm just curious, like as speakers, I think there's kind of this there's this, uh, I don't know, bit of a, a stereotype that you're speaker, so therefore you're gone all the time. Therefore, it's impossible to be like have a healthy, normal, successful family. And unfortunately, you and I both know a lot of speakers who have very, very rocky relationships with their spouse or ex-spouse or kids have managed to do a great job of having a great relationship in, in your marriage and with your kids. And so kind of talk us through that. Over the years of speaking, what have you learned? How have you maintained some of that balance and sanity in your personal life? Well, I'll be the first to admit I'm not the best husband in the world. And that's not to do with the speaking business. That is me as a spouse, we got to be intentional. And some of you guys do it so much better than I do in terms of date nights and things like that. So Lori and I have been married for 31 years and we've got three kids. They're 30, 29, 27. They're all rocking it. They're, it's so fun to look back. And there's one thing that Lori and I know we did well. We parented really well in the midst of this speaking career. So a couple things that I would tell you, number one is make time for your spouse. And I've done it well at times and not so well at other times because when you have kids, what do you do when you come home? You spend a lot of time with the kids. But what Lori and I started doing, I think it was around our 10th anniversary, we'd take a week and we'd go away. We went to Club Med a lot of times because it was a cruise on land and I love to play. And people were like, you leave your kids for a week? Well, we had two of us had great moms who would come in and the kids, they're like, woohoo, yeah. go away. And so we made intentional time away that we would go. So she is a mom because she was a at home mom, but she also ran the backside of the business. So she was busy. She got a week away. And then I also made time. Her parents always lived in different parts of the world, working oil field. I said, whenever she wanted to go, go, Laura, here's miles, go spend time with your family, your parents, which helped her. And then I would stay that week with our kids. Something in terms of parenting, I tried not to work the weekends. Lori said to me, she said, Phil, Sunday's the longest day of the week. I said, why? She said, during the week they were at school, Saturdays were busy. Sundays, we didn't play sports. We did church in the morning, and then it was just we tried not to play sports that day. And so she said, if you'll be home Sunday. So I – there were times I'd have to leave late Sunday night, drive somewhere. But I got to the point where I didn't work weekends. And I actually had a client about five years ago call and say, hey, do you work weekends yet? I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, for years you wouldn't. That was your brand. I laughed and said, sure, the kids are gone. And so I've been working weekends since. 
But that was just something I chose not to do because my kids were in public school versus where you guys are homeschooling. You've got the flexibility to say, hey, I'm going to work a weekend. But hey, maybe during the middle of the week, we'll take a trip to Florida. We'll go see grandma and grandpa. So I think for a speaker to figure out what's the balance in their life so they can be really intentional. I remember when our oldest daughter first started school, I remember I had a lot of conversations with you of just asking, like, you know, we want to do this speaking thing and the speaking thing is going well and I'm gone a lot. But how do you balance it with, you know, your kids being in school and balance it with wanting to take them out on a regular basis? I remember you telling me that you when your kids, if I remember right, they were in elementary and you took them to Australia for a month. Is that right? Yeah, that particular trip, we went from December into January, we took them out a week before school got out. We stayed out a week after it started, which is a great time because those are slow weeks in school. But when they were even younger, we took a driving trip for a month in the south part of the United States. We saw the southern states except Florida. We spent a month on the road because it was so valuable to do that. The teachers were like, hey, go. And they, the kids all did their homework and wrote reports. But the kids remember that now. And again, I think a lot of speakers are like, I can't give up a month of speaking. Well, here's the question I'd ask. Do you think I have any idea where the money was that I would have made that month when my kids were in the South? That money would be gone. But we all talk about holding alligators in the swamps and going to the Southern plantations. Those are memories that we'll never forget. That money's long gone. Yeah. All right, let's wrap up with this. Any just kind of final words of wisdom for speakers that are, I think, again, there's a lot of new speakers, speakers that are just getting started that listen to the show. And I know you talk with a lot of speakers. There's a lot of people that reach out to you. I, I remember reaching out to you early on in my own career. So any big picture advice you'd leave us with? Do everything you can to stay balanced. And balance is a funny thing. You think of the guy on the tight wire. He's got the stick in his hand because you're going to go right, you're going to go left. Sometimes you can get too focused on business. You need to flip back a little bit your family. Take care of your body because... The bottom line, we can't be any better to the audience than we are ourselves. And so if we're healthy at home and we're healthy ourselves, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, we're going to be great when we get the mic in our hands. But if we're messed up off the stage, it's going to come out on stage. So just I, w I would encourage any speaker to do whatever you can to stay balanced. And I think that's definitely something that I've learned a lot from you just watching you and and that Phil Boyd plays more than anybody that I know. And I say that as a compliment that uh, he's always up to some adventure. And, and that's something that, you know, he and I, we like to razz each other about the adventures that we're always up to. But I've learned a lot from Phil and just enjoying life and that uh, staying young by playing. And I just want to publicly say how much I appreciate you and value your impact and influence in my life and, and what you've done. So, hey, if people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, if we want to check out Breaking Down the Walls and some of the programs that you've built, where can we go? On my website's at philboyt.com, and Boyt is B-O-Y-T-E, and then, or you can follow me on Twitter at philboyt. Beautiful. Well, we will link up to that in the show notes. So, Phil, thanks for taking the time, buddy. Appreciate you. All right, Grant. Thanks. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that chit-chat chatteroo with Phil Boyd, speaker, entrepreneur, all-around good dude. So definitely, definitely, definitely check out what he's up to. Check out what he's out doing. You can go over to thespeakerlab.com, go to the show notes of this episode and any episode and just find the links and just a quick summary of uh, everything that we discussed and talked about. Definitely stop by again, thespeakerlab.com. Hey, I mentioned to you at the beginning, but definitely also you're going to want to join us for one of our next online free workshops. You go to freespeakerworkshop.com. Again, that is free speakerworkshop.com. Come join us on one of our next trainings, and we're going to teach you all about how to find and book speaking engagements. Going to be a lot of fun, so don't miss it, my friends. All right, that wraps up episode 64. Do you remember, remind, do you remember Nintendo 64? Yeah, that was fun. It just, it just triggered in my mind. 
was really random, but again, we're going to leave that in. We'll catch you next time, my friends. You're awesome.